all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about EisenhowerCenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. First up, we're going to hear from a Vietnam-era doctor. He is now retired, living down in Florida. But he had a chance to reflect with us what it was like to be a kind of a brand-new doctor sent to Vietnam and some of his experiences um, that were both uh, chilling and life-shaping. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation with Dr. Sam Kalush. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Dr. Samuel Kalush. Dr. Kalush uh, spent a little time in the Army back uh, back in the day. Uh, he graduated from U of M, uh, University of Michigan Medical School in 1966. And then Uncle Sam came calling, and you served in Vietnam as a battalion surgeon with a and then from uh, August 1967 to the April 1968, I should say, that's when you served. And then uh, you served as a staff surgeon in the 98th EVAC Hospital in Da Nang from May of 1968 to July of 1968. Uh, Dr. Kalush then returned to the United States, uh, was at Fort Bragg to finish out his tour at Womack Army Hospital through 1969. Uh, went on to train in general surgery, followed by heart surgery. Uh, was in private practice in heart surgery in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Saginaw, Michigan, until the early 90s. Uh, got smart, moved south to nicer weather in Sarasota, Florida, and uh, continued on helping out as a cardiologist until the, uh, 2020. Uh, so you've had a long and distinguished career in medicine. Uh, I, I want to bring you all the way back, Dr. Kalush, to uh, when you had those captain bars on. You ready for that? I'm ready, shoot. <laughs> so why don't you tell us how a nice doctor like you got uh, pulled in to be a battalion surgeon? Well, as you mentioned in the uh, 
in the introduction there, which was very nice. Thank you very much. I got a draft notice in the spring of 1967, uh, as most of my uh, classmates did that were in this intern class in Milwaukee. And I was ordered to report to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio for boot camp for doctors. That was a, a one-month boot camp. And that went by pretty quickly, and uh, they gave us uh, a few bucks and some uniforms and put us on a plane, a commercial flight, over to Vietnam. And uh, I landed in Vietnam and basically uh, jumped on a helicopter, and they took me out to my assigned unit, the 1st to the 28th, with the 1st Infantry Division. And I was a uh, captain, and I was the medical officer for the battalion with a squad of medics. And from there... We carried out our various uh, missions. And back, uh, let's remind folks, because we have so many people who are listening to Veteran Radio here, uh, Dr. Kalush, that it was common, and in fact, I don't know if any doctor didn't go through this process. They may not have ended up in Vietnam, but Uncle Sam was grabbing doctors left and right, wasn't he? Yes, in 1967, as I remember, every uh, every one of my peers in my internship class, in my medical school class, had an obligation with the federal government, most of which was being drafted into the military service in one branch or another. Fact. Yes, and it was all new experiences. Uh, I've heard that uh, in a war, you have to relearn the lessons that people learned in the previous war, and that was certainly true. I had never uh, been exposed to the trauma that I was about to see in Vietnam, nor the uh, civilian illnesses that we saw over in the subtropical region. So it was uh, a learning experience as well as service. So talk to us a little bit about, um, uh, Sam, about the what, what the role of the battle uh, battalion surgeon was uh, at that point in time. Well, I had the immediate uh, responsibility of looking after the uh, the health needs of the battalion, along with my squad of medics. Uh, generally speaking, we had the squad of medics, uh, which were uh, to support the morale of the enlisted men, and you had the doctor in the units to support the morale of the officers. But beyond that, uh, we had a sick call every day because... Uh, with several hundred people in the battalion, we had the usual and variety of illnesses that come up in any large group of people. And, uh, of course, we had the uh, the wounds from war that we uh, uh, had to take care of and uh, provide a lot of first aid. We had to concentrate on evacuation of uh, personnel that were seriously ill or seriously wounded. Uh, that was part of our duty. And if we had civilians or enemy troops, uh, we provided care for them as well. We really didn't uh, distinguish too much in terms of uh, how we took care of people if they brought us a patient. So a lot of this was sophisticated first aid, but sometimes uh, we actually had to do some fairly aggressive surgical procedures in the field if it was a life-saving situation. 
Well, that's part of how medicine has really changed over time is what you actually could do in the field or shouldn't do in the field. But let me back you up. How many doctors would have been in the, the, what's the size of the medical team? Well, we had, uh, for this battalion of about anywhere from four to 600 soldiers, we had the one doctor, myself, and I had seven or eight medics with me. Americans also came up with a lot of unusual diseases, tropical diseases that you just don't see. In Well, that's very true. One of the most common illnesses we saw was malaria. Uh, we picked up a lot of malaria over in Vietnam. Part of that was due to the fact that the enemy troops, particularly the North Vietnamese that came into country to do their fighting, they brought the malaria with them, and uh, they infected the mosquitoes who then would come over and and infect our troops. So we had to learn to recognize uh, malaria. And if we recognize it, then we evacuated that individual because that's not something I could really take care of in the field. This wasn't the sort of uh, uh, assignment or detail that kept you uh, safely behind the wire, as they like to say today, or in the green zone? Well, uh, we spent so much time in the field on our sweeps, on our so-called search and destroy missions, and there was really no safe space uh, once we were out in the jungle. Uh, We would conduct our sweeps and, of course, always fearful of snipers or an ambush. And then we would construct what we call a night defensive position. It was really an overnight camp. And we put up a security uh, circle troops who, who stood guard. But when we did come under attack, uh, there was really no safe space to go to. Uh, everybody was vulnerable. They put us in the middle uh, of things and brought the wounded to us uh, in, in the middle of our encampment. And we just kind of hoped we could get some uh, treatment going clear a spot for the helicopter to come in and uh, depend on the soldiers to prevent the enemy from overrunning the camp. You're a brand new Uh, doctor. You're a brand new, you know, captain. Uh, This is not an experience you've ever had. What was the first firefight like for you? Well, the first firefight, uh, we were uh, actually camped out at an airstrip. And we had conducted a sweep uh, in the area a little bit northwest of Saigon. So it was kind of a remote uh, airfield. Uh, We got first wind that there could be trouble when there were uh, uh, journalists and photographers that showed up. And they generally only showed up if there was a pretty good chance that we were going to encounter the enemy. And that night, the enemy attacked us. We came under heavy uh, uh, fire from artillery and small arms fire. And really, the enemy came right up to the wire, and we were able to hold them off, and we were able to survive the night and win the night. But we lost some, uh, we lost some of our soldiers that night, and uh, we retrieved several of the enemy dead as well. And... The unique thing about that for me, I'll never forget, they brought me a soldier who had been hit with shrapnel in the mouth and jaw, and he was really having trouble breathing because it was uh, his teeth and his tongue and everything was uh, lacerated with this 
artillery fragment, and he just couldn't get air in and out of his lungs. And I had to go ahead and do uh, an operation it's called a tracheotomy. It's making a little slit in the front portion of the neck and putting an airway tube directly in to the trachea and bypassing the area of the injury. And things were quite intense at that time, and I remember that the only light I had was a flashlight, and the uh, commander of the unit said, Doc, use the red filter on it because we don't want any bright light here to, to give away our position to the enemy. So with the medics helping me and a red light, I was able to get this airway tube in, and we were able to evacuate this kid. And I always wondered just what happened to him, but I didn't never got a follow up. And that that was our first encounter with the enemy. Well, and and uh, we're talking to Dr. Samuel Kalush, who was an army captain, surgeon um, in Vietnam. We're talking that period of uh, oh 1967, 68 uh, primarily. Uh, Doc, as you mentioned, it it must have been a sort of a, a soul-shaking experience to see the, the carnage among these young kids. Well, you know, a lot of feelings, uh, a lot of different feelings were uh, were going through our minds at that time uh, over this experience. This was something that none of us in the unit uh, had experienced until we got to Vietnam. And I really wasn't that much older than some of these fellows. I was 25 years old at the time, these troopers were 18, 19, 20 years old, and the officers were a bit older than I was. It was trauma that none of us had ever really seen before. It was the anxiety of not knowing how long this encounter was going to last. It was not knowing how many enemy troops were out there, and we knew we had to take care of each other. So you pretty much react according to the training you had in that kind of situation. And you and you somehow get through it. I can remember when I when they flew me in uh, the first day in the field, and uh, the, I was replacing another battalion surgeon who happened to be uh, who happened to go to school at Ohio State. Believe it or not, he was a Buckeye. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I hopped off the helicopter and I asked him if he would stick around for a day or two to orient me because I said, I, I really don't know anything about this kind of duty or this kind of medicine. I mean, I'm just coming out of an internship. And he looked at me as he put his foot up on a helicopter. He said, listen, the medics will teach you everything you know. I'm out of here. So <laughs> we, we talked about that first firefight, and, and when we were communicating earlier, you said, hey, I was in a lot of firefights. And I said, well, I'm going to ask you about the most ferocious firefight. Which, which one sticks out in your mind even all these decades later where you thought, oh, boy, this, this thing might go the wrong way? Well, I think the one uh, where I had the most anxiety is where the lieutenant colonel, he came to me and he said, Doc, our sister unit is getting uh, getting pounded over here a few uh, kilometers away, and their doctor got killed. Can you go over there with some medics and uh, provide the uh, care that they need? I wasn't excited about that, but of course, you just, like I said, you just react. You, you get on the helicopter and you go over there, and they had a terrible firefight going on, but they, they were able to get us into it. And they brought me their commander, who was mortally wounded. 
Yeah, and that's not good when the unit loses its commander. It's the lieutenant colonel. I tried to save him, but he he uh, he died uh, on the battlefield. And we uh, fought off these uh, Vietnamese, these uh, North Vietnamese, and uh, the battle ended. And it was kind of late at night at that point. It was 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got to march back through the jungle at night with my medics. I said, we're never going to make it. Well, a miracle happened in that they brought a helicopter for me and my medics. And I was a little reluctant to get on it because everybody else had to march home. But they said, no, you came from a different unit, and we appreciate that you came here with your medics. And uh, we have one ride out, and we want you to take it. So. That was where I, I think I had more anxiety during that particular encounter than anything else because I was so fearful of having to march in the jungle at night. <laughs> right. What what month would that have been? Do you remember, Doc? That was in December of '67. In in that first firefight, what month would that have been? That was in November, early November of '67. So in the one month time, you go from your first. To, to your most ferocious, um, yeah. it really, really got to be aging you uh, as you're going through this process, isn't it? I felt the gray hairs coming in. I'll tell you that it, it was uh, the you always had the anxiety anyway. Every day there was the anxiety that there were these isolated snipers out there uh, taking pot shots at us. But these battles were another thing. You just never saw the enemy. All you saw was. Uh, people getting hit and the artillery coming in, the mortars coming in. So it, it definitely had a level of excitement that I had never really been used to. I kind of knew who to take out commanders to, to demoralize the troops and, and try to break the back of that particular unit or platoon, didn't they? They did. They looked for targets like that. So the officers in the unit did not wear their uh, officers' uh, bars. And uh, we didn't wear any Red Cross uh, or medical uh, insignia on our uniforms or helmets just for that reason. That if you wore anything to identify you as an officer or as a, uh, as a medical personnel, you, you would become a, a special target. Um, but you had another event in February of 1968 that's uh, noteworthy enough that the uh, Army made notice of it, and you were awarded the Silver Star, which is highly unusual. Tell us about yeah. uh, that particular uh, engagement. Well, we went out in a, in a full battalion sweep, and that was just after the Tut Offensive broke loose all over the country. So we knew everywhere, and we knew they were on a military mission. So we we got our unit together, the battalion together, the colonel and the, all the officers, myself, the medics, and we started this, we went on this sweep in a fairly populated area. Actually, it wasn't so much the jungle. It was pretty close to Saigon. And uh, I remember crossing a creek, and as soon as we crossed the creek, we heard a few pot shots and some of the lead elements in our unit uh, got hit, and we thought it was either a sniper or an ambush. Well, it turned out to be an ambush. But before we knew that, you know, as soon as a soldier gets hit, we hear the cry, medic, medic, a very loud cry, medic, medic. So there, 
I got up with several of the medics, and we literally ran forward. Well, this was the sign for the ambush to occur. And uh, we, as soon as we turned a corner, uh, the full force of the North Vietnamese regiment hit us. And I don't—I—I I really don't know how I quite survived that because there were people going down all around me, and there were shells coming in behind us. But somehow, somehow we we got through that, and then the battle lasted several hours, and we were tending to the wounded as best we could. Um, but we finally won the day in large part thanks to the uh, air power that we had. Thank goodness we had the Air Force and the Army gunships to help us out. Uh, so we turned the tide of the battle. And um, at the end of the battle, the uh, commanding general came down with his staff. I remember he landed with two or three helicopters. And he passed out several awards to the uh, soldiers who had participated in that particular ambush, that firefight. And I was, I was asked to receive the uh, Silver Star on the battlefield at that time. You, you make this sound like it was just another day at the office, and you and I both know, Sam, it was not. Yeah. It, it was a very uh, uh, eventful day uh, that I'll never forget. In fact, one of the things that happened is, the, you know, the general came down and made the awards, and this was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, still plenty of daylight. And then the general left, and the colonel came to us and said, I got some bad news. He said, we're missing some of our men. He said, and you know, we never leave anybody behind, dead or alive. He said, we're going back in there to get these boys. And I thought, oh, boy, I don't want to go back in there. I said, that's just nothing but enemy troops back there. But, you know, uh, you just you just react and you just do what uh, the colonel asked you to do. And we went back in and we retrieved our dead and wounded. Uh, and we didn't encounter a firefight. We were able to do that uneventfully, but the, but the level of anxiety just never seemed to change. And it was more intense at those moments. But then the next day we were worried we'd have to face the same thing all over again. On that eventful day in February 20th of 1968, did your uh, medical team uh, lose anybody in that fight? We did not. I was fortunate we didn't lose any of our medics uh, at that time. And, and again, it's, it's one of those things where I, I suspect you're going, just like going back to get the fallen troops and, and surviving that and not having a firefighter, you sort of thank God for small favors, don't you? Boy, you bet. You know, we had a chaplain with us, a priest who was from Boston. And uh, we all had religion over there, I can tell you that. And uh, attendance at the Sunday services, Sunday mass was, was uh, very high. And we... We got a lot of counseling from the chaplain. He was he was a really good uh, priest, really good with the troops. But uh, yeah, we were all prepared for the ultimate uh, sacrifice. That that didn't seem to be a problem. Nobody shirked from any of that kind of duty. 
I think people think chaplains and medics and doctors are safely behind the line and aren't aren't faced by these problems. But my guess is that uh, that particular chaplain, if he was good, which you say he was, at counseling and working with folks, he got his boots dirty, just like you had to get your boots dirty. Yeah, he was in the field with us. Uh, in fact, he was with us all the time. Uh, the medical people were with the unit. It was a it was a guerrilla type of warfare, so there were really no front lines. So wherever the colonel took us, we were all together. You've been married for fifty three years. You've got three children. You got six grandchildren. Are there lessons you learned, uh, Dr. Kalush, during this service period that you sort of try to pass along or uh, or apply in your in your subsequent uh, medical practice and your years of kind of giving back? Well, I can, I can tell you one thing that Vietnam uh, did. It made me a better surgeon. I, there's no question about that. Uh, I had some. I had significant experience taking care of uh, trauma in the field, uh, doing doing the surgery that was necessary. And then at the end of my tour, I did surgery at the Evac Hospital. And then uh, the following year, I was very busy at Fort Bragg doing surgery as well. And this military surgical experience, uh, no question in my mind just uh, gave me uh, better skills to uh, practice, ultimately, my uh, open-heart surgery career. So there was that direct and uh, concrete and physical uh, experience over there that helped me with my profession, my chosen profession. The other thing over there is, uh, you know, when we're out in the field for nine months, there's nothing to do except fight and be ready to fight. I mean, you can't really pick up and go out to dinner anywhere. You can't go out and see a movie. You can't uh, take a vacation uh, into some uh, uh, area. So you learn to live in the present. I think, boy, you know, nowadays that gets harder to do because you're always planning on some something in the future you want to do. But over there, you had to learn to live in the present. And I think that was a valuable uh, episode in in my life. I think everybody should uh, have to go through that. Um, You know, after we got over there a while, we started counting the days until until we could depart for the home and get back home. It was called the D-Rose date, the date of estimated return from overseas duty <laughs> or something like that. And um, we really learned to appreciate home, which was our country, the United States. We just couldn't wait to get home and just hope to get home in one piece and alive. That was a... Um, it was a deep yearning uh, that never left our thoughts. And, you know, in a war, you have that unique opportunity to see what I would call the best of human nature and the worst of human nature. You see the entire spectrum. And, you know, I... I don't think there's any other experience outside of war where you can see that 
degree of uh, complexity in the human nature. Some other things over there, you know, we were all drafted. And when you have a group of uh, people that are drafted, you learn to appreciate the differences that uh, everybody brings to the unit. We had people from all walks of life. We had people of all different colors, all different cultures, but they were all Americans. And these were maybe people you wouldn't uh, see or, or do much with back in civilian life, but in the Army, being a group of draftees, which we all were, we learned to uh, appreciate each other and learn from each other. Those were invaluable lists, uh, lessons that we learned over there. Um, well, I think one of the things I guess I'd, uh, as we come to the conclusion here and we're talking to former Army Captain Sam Kalush, Dr. Kalush uh, spent a career as a uh, heart surgeon uh, after the, after his service in Vietnam. Um, Doc, I don't know if people still ask you this, but I always kind of want to get a view of somebody who's uh, who's been in the military and now away for a long time and a lot has happened. Uh, what, what's your sense today about uh, military service, uh, if somebody would ask you? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, my own perspective on that is I thought at the time that the, that the draft was a very valuable tool that the, that the government had to bring citizens of various backgrounds together. Uh, Dr. Uh, Kalush, I really appreciate the extra time that you've provided to Veterans Radio today to give some insight what it was like to be a, uh, Battalion surgeon in Vietnam. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad uh, to have the privilege of talking to you today, Jim. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this look back by a retired surgeon who was a captain in Vietnam. Every soldier has a story, and we've now heard Dr. Samuel Kalush's. After a short break, we're going to hear from the NOAA Corps. You're asking yourself, what's the NOAA Corps? You'll want to listen to the next part of the program to understand this uniform service that provides a valuable service to the United States uh, government and to our country. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Lieutenant Dustin Picard of the NOAA Corps. This is the first time I think Veterans Radio has ever had the chance to interview somebody from the NOAA Corps. So, Dustin, uh, Lieutenant, we're glad to have you. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, and I just want to thank you for inviting uh, the NOAA Corps. I'm uh, honored to be here and to to talk to you and and to your listeners. And I want to thank our veterans, too. Uh, You guys have paved the road for us and 
and I wouldn't be here in this seat if it, if it wasn't for all of our veterans. So, so thank you to you, sir, and thank you to our veterans listening. Well, I want to tell a few folks, we have a lot of Army guys listening, and they're going, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, what the hell does that mean? Well, sure. the Corps has the same uh, rank as the Navy. That is correct. Yep. So we have the same same ranks as the as pretty much all the seagoing services as the Navy and the Coast Guard. So a lieutenant is a railroad track uh, officer for those Army guys who uh, understand that, uh, that. Oh, that's a captain in my language or the mm-hmm. uh, Air Force guys. So we just kind of wanted to set up Lieutenant Picard um, a little bit about because people aren't familiar with the NOAA Corps. So why don't you start by telling us what the NOAA Corps is all about? Yeah, uh, great question to start us off, and it's a it's a very loaded question, so I'll, I'll do my best to, to steer us straight here. So the NOAA Corps is a uniformed service. Uh, we are one of eight services now in the country. So you have your six armed services, and, and most people know the five, the six being the new Space Force, and then you have two uniformed services, one being the U.S. Public Health Service, and then, of course, the NOAA Commission Corps being the eighth service there. Uh, we're extremely small. Um, we are currently about 335 officers strong, no enlisted corps, um, but we have uh, mandates to grow up to 500 now, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk to that here shortly. But um, we, we kind of are at the intersection of science and service. So unlike the other services, our missions are completely environmentally and science-based, and, and that's where all of our funding comes from. In fact, we fall under NOAA, which is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, uh, and that falls under the Department of Commerce. So unlike our, our uh, other services, we are not a part of DOD. We're actually part of DOC. Um, and so all of our missions and all of our funding comes comes from there. And, and uh, that, that's kind of where we find ourselves. Uh, I mentioned we are environmentally and, and uh, science at the intersection of environmental and, and, and science and, and service. So uh, we do have two distinct um, career paths in the Corps, uh, the maritime side of the house as, as well as the aviation side of the house. So uh, I'd say it's about a 70-30 split. 70% of us are, are mariners and maritime-based and, and ship driving, small boat, diving, those kind of disciplines. Where the other 30% are, are aviators, so pilots or navigators um, flying, flying our aircraft. And I think some folks would uh, remember the uh, public health service as a uniform service because they see in this time of COVID, they've seen the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the Surgeon General who heads up the United States Public Health Service on TV a lot. Um, one doesn't see the head of the NOAA Corps on TV. Uh, it's a, an uh, admiral position, as I understand it. That is correct. And um, But n- the NOAA Corps has a, a long history. It's not something new just because you just heard about it. Tell us a little bit about the uh, history of the NOAA Corps. Yeah, it's a really rich history, so I'll try to be pretty brief and succinct with it. Uh, we can actually trace our lineage, lineage back to the early 1800s, 1807, in fact. And we started off as the uh, the Coast Survey. And at the time, we were mandated to, to survey the coastlines and all the navigable waters of, of what was then the United States, and, or you know, much smaller than it is now, but the coastline that we had. And we worked hand-in-hand with the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy to get our job done. Um, fast forward to the Civil War, and I should say the, the Coast Survey, we were, we were civilian federal employees. We were not recognized as a, as a uniformed service at this time. Um, fast forward to the Civil War, uh, we were kind of thrust right into it, just like a lot of, a lot of individuals were during that time. And we mostly served on the union side of things um, as mappers, cartographers, and in all theaters of the war, of the war as well. Um, so we kind of started to to really make a name for ourselves and assimilate into the services at that point. 
um, wearing uniforms with, with the other union um, service members as well. Uh, fast forward to, um, you know, after the Civil War and what we call the pre-World War I years, uh, we started to get more and more funding. And um, as the U.S. was growing and so was our territories, we started to get more missions, um, you know, kind of uh, remote. Uh, so we, we were deployed out to Alaska, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, you know, Hawaii, just kind of making a name for ourselves and, and charting and mapping these new areas that were coming online. In World War II, um, we were uh, a service was created and we kind of transformed into the Coast and Geodetic Survey. Um, and we were simulated um, into all the services. Um, so from the Navy, the Marine Corps, our officers served in, in one or, or more of these, these serv- um, branches, I should say, uh, during, during the time of the war. Uh, we served as artillery uh, officers, mine lane officers, troop transport navigators, intelligence officers. We pretty much brought our skill set to these services and served wherever they needed us. Following World War I, um, we reverted back to our role, you know, kind of peaceful surveyors, chart makers of the nation, focusing more on navigable waterways and commerce and that kind of stuff. Uh, and we spent a year practicing and, and refining this skill set. Uh, our missions kind of started to increase a little bit to land surveying. Uh, and started taking a look more at our, our airways charting and, and, and um, coastal mapping as well as oceanography. So we started to expand some of our disciplines and, and not so much just on on bathymetric surveys and nautical charting, but but kind of growing into into the mold that we are now. Um, during World War II, just like World War One, um, many of our individuals were assimilated into the other service as well. Uh, over half of our forces, in fact. Um, and we were we were deployed all over in, in all theaters of the war. Um, again, we served as hydrographers, amphibious engineers, beach masters, and recon surveyors. Uh, we also introduced uh, and started to, to bring along aeronautical charting um, and, and provide a plethora of technical positions through the services as well. Uh, in fact, the USS Pathfinder, which was a, at the time a coast and geodetic ship, was taken over by the Navy. And Admiral Chester Nimitz is quoted as saying the road to Tokyo was paved with Pathfinder charts. And this was not uncommon for our ships to be taken over by the other services. Uh, they would often sail ahead of of, um, of the sh- of the warships, basically, to to chart and survey and, and provide uh, recon um, back to back to the fleet as they advanced. Um, after World War II, uh, we, we started to return to normal routines, and, and all was, was pretty normal for about 30 years. And then in the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, environmental focus kind of took over the nation, and there was a, quite a bit of reorganization of government agencies, especially on the science side of things. And that's where NOAA, uh, what we presently know as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, was created. And shortly thereafter, the NOAA Corps came into existence as well. And so basically from, from then on, that's from the early 1970s to where we see today, that's, that's how we know, that's what we know as, as the NOAA Corps. Um, and, and yeah, that's pretty much our history. Well, that's, it's 50 years now that uh, the NOAA Corps has been called that. But as you say, it has this rich history of being the country's uh, chart makers and mappers. And this was all before uh, satellite, all before GPS. Uh, every time you, somebody went into a new territory, hey, take Guam, take the Philippines, somebody had to go figure out the waterways and where it was safe and where it wasn't to take ships and at what depth. So it's a very fascinating history. And, um, I, again, because it's so small, it's easy to overlook it. So I wanted to start there for our list veteran radio listeners. And we're talking to Lieutenant Dustin Picard, who's with NOAA Corps. 
Dustin, tell us a little bit about today's NOAA Corps in terms of the equipment that it has at its disposal. You mentioned it's sort of 70% sea service, 30% air service. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, great question. So um, on the maritime side of the house, we currently have 15 ships in operation. Um, and some of them, the, the classes are all different. Um, some of them were built in the 1950s or rather old, and, and some of them are, are, are brand spanking new. Uh, we've got some ships that have sailed in the Navy and came over to our hands. So some of our listeners might be uh, familiar with the Tiago's class vessels. Uh, we've got three or four of those in our fleet currently. Um, and we've got two new builds coming online. Um, they're both being built down in Louisiana right now and, and anticipated those to be online in 2024 and 2025. So we'll be shortly growing back up to 17 ships for our fleet. And these ships are, are home ported all over the country. We've got one out in Hawaii, a couple in Alaska, the West Coast in Oregon, California, uh, Gulf of Mexico. We've got three out of, out of Mississippi and Pascagoula. Uh, and then out east on the, on the Atlantic seaboard, we've got uh, ships in Charleston, Norfolk, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire as well. So we're strategically located throughout as far as our, our maritime um, side of the house is concerned. For our aircraft, we have uh, nine aircraft currently. Uh, we have P3s, uh, Twin Otters, and Gulf Streams. And all these aircraft do a variety of missions, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, yeah, that's some of uh, our, our fleet, both on the, the maritime and the aviation side of things. Well, in last year's National Defense Act of 2020 the, and that the president signed, there, there were a lot of dollars and authorizations that were directed to the NOAA Corps, which is allowing you to move the number of officers up to 500, which is a big step up from from where you were at about 335. Um, Absolutely. How how will those additional officers, and as you pointed out earlier, this the NOAA Corps is just officers, there's no enlisted, how will those mm-hmm. officers be integrated in over kind of what period of time, and uh, what, what uh, what's the Corps thinking about in this uh, big uh, surge of uh, personnel? Yeah, great question. I think uh, I think we're still trying to answer that question ourselves, to be completely honest with you, but it's, um, let me start by saying it's, it's never been a better time to be part of the of the core just for the recognition of, of the work that we do from Congress. And, and, and that is never more evident by the fact that they, you know, they, they have decided to, they have passed the NOAA core reauthorization bill, which you referred to in, in December and it decided to increase our number. So um, before December of last year, we were uh, congressionally mandated to 321 officers. And as you mentioned, this new bill that came through uh, bumped our numbers up to 500. So it's going to be a slow roll. Um, it's not going to be, you know, 200 additional officers within a year. That's just not possible or feasible. Um, but we're going to slowly increase our, our, our recruitment classes. Um, you know, on average, it's about 10 or so per class. So that might be bumped up to, to 15 or so. So we'll be we'll be uh, increasing our numbers there. And then we're going to look to inter-service transfers, which we, we already heavily rely on, especially on the aviation side of things. Um, so inter-service transfers from the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, especially pilots and navigators. That is a nice pipeline that we have it, that comes in, especially at the 0304, the, the lieutenant, lieutenant commander um, ranks. And so we expect that to continue, but also probably increasing on the maritime side as, as well, because um, as you can imagine, we don't want to increase all 200 officers at the ensign level. You know, we need to increase our numbers uh, across the, the ranks and, and not just be a bottom heavy uh, approach. Um, as far as what we're going to do with all these new personnel coming in, well, I think I think that's that's still to be determined. Um, as I mentioned before, we've got kind of two sides of our house, the maritime and the, the aviation side. Um, but there's a lot of talk about 
um, growing our unmanned systems program. And I think we're going to see uh, a focus and a surge in officers and recruiting in, in that kind of realm and, and that discipline and that background, because let's face it, we all know it. That is the future uh, of not only DOD, but but also of our missions, too. You know, these unmanned systems can go places a lot quicker, a lot cheaper and a lot easier and safer than, than we can uh, on our current platform. So currently scanning up the unmanned systems um, program within the NOCOR, and I expect to, to see that um, be supported by by the REOF bill. Uh, additionally, we, we have talked about, um, you know, using this increase in officers to uh, to help strengthen our administrative capabilities as well. Currently, we re- rely on civilian federal employees, basically NOAA full-time federal employees, to support our missions from from a land-based uh, side of things, from an administrative side of things. So whether that be HR or logistics or operations, um, you know, we, we, we have civilians that we work with con- consistently and continually, and they do a fantastic job. But we're looking at potentially uh, creating some billets uh, for officers. So there might be uh, a career track for that rather than, you know, being operational on the aviation side of the house or maritime side of the house. Um, and additionally, on the same vein is, is looking at officers who, who bring like a political expertise to the game. Um, it's, it's very important for us to to work with our, our partners, uh, our congressional partners for visibility, viability, for funding, that kind of stuff. And so bringing in officers who have a, a good political background, uh, they might be able to, to kind of help help us in that in that realm and help leverage and, and promote the NOAA Corps uh, to continue to further increase uh, our missions, increase our funding. So I think you're going to see that. I think uh, to answer your question twofold, it's going to take a little while to to kind of grow these numbers, and we're going to do it slowly because we need to, we also need to to grow our our shore, our shoreside support as well. Um, and then also, I think you're going to look at uh, different career tracks that will be available for officers rather than just maritime and, and aviation. Well, Lieutenant, uh, you're currently in a recruiting billet, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because historically NOAA's had uh, officer tr- basic officer training classes maybe every year, maybe every other year, depending on staffing needs. Um, and it recruits out of uh, colleges and universities because they're all officers and, the, and there's this heavy reliance on um, science and technology. So what's the recruiting pitch? Uh, if you're if you're somebody uh, or know somebody in that uh, college realm getting out uh, after a year or two, um, why should they consider the NOAA Corps? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and honestly, I'll say this job recruits for itself just because of the, the nature of what we do. As I mentioned, we're at the intersection of science and service, so we heavily recruit out of STEM programs across the country, and we, we specifically target, you know, marine strong marine science programs, strong atmospheric science programs, uh, aviation programs, um, folks who, and then of course the maritime schools as well, like Mass Maritime, Maine Maritime, Kings Point, um, Texas A&M, Galveston. These programs are, are in Cal Maritime as well. These programs are great feeder programs for us because, you know, these students come in with an inclination to serve as it is already, or they come with an inclination in science, and then they, they hear about the core, and it's the opportunity for them to kind of blend both of those interests and do something for their career that they can, you know, uh, answer the calling to serve, but also do something for the environment, for their planet, for the nation, and for the world as well. So I think for, for those reasons, it's a very attractive career opportunity. Not to mention the fact that it's full of adventure. I mean, you get to move every two or three years, just like any other service. But the nature of our assignments, you know, our deployments are, are you know, bring you to some really cool, uh, really cool places, geographically speaking, opportunity for travel, opportunity to, to mingle and interact with, with some of the, the cutting edge scientists in, in 
marine biology, oceanography, um, uh, atmospheric sciences, whatever it may be, you know, you'll be working hand in hand with these with these scientists to kind of facilitate their operations and their missions. And that's a, extremely exciting. And I can't I can't not mention the fact that our benefits uh, program is is equivalent to what you would see in the other services as well. So, of course, the 20 year retirement with pensions available, medical, Medicare, health care, all that's uh, excuse me, medical and health uh, health care. Uh, that's the same across the board. Access to bases and, and medical treatment or military treatment facilities. Uh, of course, the Veterans Affair um, uh, benefits as well, and a GI Bill. All that's available to our officers as well. So, for someone who's who's inclined to serve, but maybe has more of a science background, or maybe has a science background but is looking for something more operationally based or something more adventurous than you know maybe sitting in a lab or doing research, this is the perfect career for them. And like I said, I, I think the career really speaks for itself, and it makes my job as a recruiter that much easier. Well, great pitch. It does make it does make it easier. Um, it, I'm glad you pointed out that uh, NOAA Corps officers are by law considered veterans of of service and have access to the VA benefits uh, that uh, flow with that. Uh, but also, NOAA Corps officers can be militarized by the President of the United States under statutory provisions at certain times of war. Go, go ahead. Uh, and then we're going to move on to, I want to move transition to the missions. Absolutely. Yeah, just to speak quickly to that, um, you, you mentioned about the Coast Guard being assimilated into their services. And, and that was one of the biggest reasons why we, we moved our, our basic officer training class, BOTSI, to the Coast Guard um, OCS program at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. Previous to 2012, it was at Kings Point. Uh, maritime. It was a great program focused, you know, predominantly on, on uh, maritime training and that kind of stuff. We moved it in 2012 to simulate fully with the U.S. Coast Guard OCS program um, because those two services, the Coast Guard and ourselves, we have so much in common between missions and, and what we do and how we serve the nation that it was kind of a no brainer. Um, and so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to our sister service, the U.S. Coast Guard and all that they do as far as partnerships and promoting the NOAA Corps as well. Well, that's great, and and I actually went through a, a basic training uh, program, uh, number fifty-seven, back in October of nineteen seventy-six, and we did it at Kings Point, uh, uh, which was the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. So I'm glad to hear uh, you give a date of of twenty twelve. It helps put it in perspective for me. Mm-hmm. Yes, w- one of the things that I wanted you to talk a little bit about, uh, Lieutenant, is. Examples of the missions. So there's a fishery components, a survey component, a research component. We've talked a little bit about the number of planes, but maybe not as much what they do. So give us some examples of the types of missions these different components of the NOAA Corps are involved in. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And uh, let me start by describing how NOAA's kind of uh, organized. So NOAA's our parent agency. Within NOAA, we have six what we call line offices. And those line offices are, are best thought about as, as sub-agencies within NOAA. And they include the National Marine Fisheries Service, the National Ocean Service, the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research, the National Weather Service, the National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service, and finally, the National Marine and Aviation Operations. Um, so those six line offices all have different missions. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners, and yourself included, will recognize some of them. Uh, most predominantly, uh, National Ocean Service, the Fisheries Service, and the Weather Service. They're the ones that are probably highlighted the most in, in day-to-day news. Um, so no Corps officers serve throughout all those line offices throughout their careers. And all these line offices have various missions that they um, and objectives that they need to get done and that they rely on the Corps to execute those missions. So, for example, uh, I've mentioned our, our fleet of 15 ships. 
they all fall under three different uh, classes. And so they could be a fisheries research ship and they'll predominantly serve the National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, they could be an oceanographic research ship. They'll serve National Ocean Service. They'll ser service uh, Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. They'll even service NESDIS, which is the satellite or the weather service. Um, and then you've got your hydro um, hydrographic survey vessels. And those are the ones that kind of take us back to our, our roots and our history. The, those are the ones that continue to do the nautical charting, nautical map mapping uh, that we, you know, we start started off doing in the early 1800s. Um, so the, some of the types of missions we might be doing. Um, so as a as a hydro hydrographer, for example, you know, assigned to one of the hydro hydrographic vessels, you could be, you know, um, deployed to the somewhere in Alaska, for example, say Glacier Bay or or somewhere up there. And you could be spending the summer um, running hydrographic missions, mapping the seafloor, which will eventually turn into our nautical charts to map our our, our nation's waterways. And it's it's actually pretty cool, you know. When I go to schools or universities to do a recruiting pitch, I have a I have a photo of a coast and geodetic survey uh, ship from 1897 mapping the same exact area of a of a NOAA ship in 2013, and it's like a, a mirror image photo. Just you know, one's black and white and grainy, and, and one's pretty clear. So it's really cool to see that 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 mission still exists, you know, 150 years later. Um, on the oceanographic side of things, you know, you could be doing anything from uh, ecosystem uh, mapping and assessment. So working uh, with our National Marine Sanctuaries Program, doing dive operations. You could be working in remote areas of the Pacific or Equatorial uh, Atlantic, deploying uh, atmospheric and oceanographic buoys that line our equator. Uh, you could be doing uh, ROV missions and ocean exploration. So we've got one ship that's dedicated and it's, it's um, the nation's only ocean exploration vessel. Uh, so it goes out and it maps new areas with, with remotely operated vehicles, ROVs. Um, so those are kind of our, our catch-all vessels. They can, they're just multifaceted ships that can do a lot of different missions. And then finally, our fisheries vessels, they work predominantly for the National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, and what they do is they, they do stock assessment. So they go out and they look at uh, pr primarily commercial um, fisheries, and, and they look at, you know, they might go ahead before a commercial season starts, and they might take assessment of what the what the uh, health of that 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 uh, commercial fisheries looks like. Um, they'll also do a lot of marine mammal research and um, long term fisheries assessments. Uh, so what I mean by that is they do projects year in and year out the same time frame, so they can get these data sets that are very consistent. And they can tell the health of that species, the health of that ecosystem, and use that to set legislation, to set policy when it comes to fisheries. So all of it kind of ties in that way. Um, on the other side of the house, the aircraft um, side of things, those those planes are, are a lot of them are, are multifaceted and they'll, they'll do a whole lot of missions. So, again, uh, they'll work for various line offices in, in one way or another, but sometimes they might be doing uh, aerial marine, uh, marine mapping. So they might be doing coastal mapping. And where this comes to light is, is like right after a storm goes through or a natural emergency, um, you know, we'll, we'll, have, we'll deploy our, our aircraft to, to kind of do some, some coastal mapping, aerial coastal mapping to get a, an idea of the extent of damage or, you know, how we can get first responders in. Uh, they might be doing marine mammal assessments. So just like our ships are, you know, on the ocean and, and, and kind of doing marine mammal assessments from above, we're using our aircraft to spot pods of, of, of whales and endangered species. So that way our scientists can kind of get to them. Uh, we might be doing snow surveys uh, in the Midwest in the winter. And what that does is, is we can use technology to kind of predict uh, how much um, uh, how much snow melt we'll have in the spring. And that'll directly influence 
um, basically the return on investment for our farmers in the Midwest, because that, uh, you know, as that snow melt comes down, that'll directly in, in, impact their, their seasons, basically. And so you can kind of see why we're tied in the Department of Commerce in that sense, because a lot of our missions ultimately will, will lead to um, legislation or, or let, lend to, uh, lead to funding that'll directly impact our nation's economy. Our interview with uh, NOAA Lieutenant Picard went on for another, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes. You can pick it up on our podcast. We encourage you to visit VeteranRadio.net, look at our podcast, go to our Facebook page. Uh, we've always got something interesting. We want to thank our VSO sponsors and NVBDC.org for its continued support of uh, our operations as well as the Eisenhower Center. Dale will be back next week with a great program. You can always find us or reach out to us on Facebook or email us at jim at veteransradio.net or dale at veteransradio.net. We're always looking for your ideas in terms of programs. Uh, so we'll have uh, more for you coming into next year as we move into 2022. Hard to even say that. But until next time on Veterans Radio, you are dismissed.